This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. I didn't sell anything. And I had a huge overhead of $50,000 a month just to keep the company open. So at the end of December, I had to make a big decision of basically closing the company. I had no money coming in and I, I was paying my employees all the other bills. So basically lost everything, had to foreclose on the rental properties in Phoenix and I had to file for bankruptcy. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids & Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill. And today we're talking about how to go from poverty to self-made millionaire. Now, everyone loves a good success story. And man, do I have one for you today. Patrick M.A. is my guest today. Patrick is a sales professional and real estate investor living in San Diego with his wife, Kirsten. Originally from Rwanda, Patrick made his way to the U.S., grew his wealth, battled adversity, and eventually became a self-made millionaire. Today, we're going to learn about his journey so we can all thrive like he has. When Patrick isn't growing his wealth and staring at his spreadsheets, as he likes to say, he loves traveling the world with his wife and spending time with his family. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you for having me on. Oh, Patrick, it's great to talk to you. I know we've been connected for a little while, and I'm so glad to hear your voice and interview you today. So talk to me about Rwanda. Talk to me about what your childhood was like there and a little bit about your family situation. Life was great growing up. My mother has 11 siblings and each one of my uncles and aunts had at least five kids each. So we had a lot of cousins. So we didn't have in terms of material stuff. I didn't watch cartoons growing up as we didn't have a TV. We actually didn't have electricity until I was six. So we made our own toys and kept ourselves uh, very occupied. School was really fun because we only went to school in the mornings because in the afternoons it was too hot to be in classes because we didn't have any fans or AC. So we pretty much had afternoons off to play. Well, that's great. So lots of family, lots of fun, lots of people to play with too. My wife comes from a family. Her mom had eight siblings too. So she's got cousins all over the place. So it's a lot of fun to play with family, even if you don't have all the material possessions. So talk to me a little bit about when you moved away from Rwanda and, and why you did. So my my dad died when I was really young, and my mom had to find a job real quick. And at that time in Rwanda, wives didn't really work, and they were stay-at-home moms. So my mom had a job as a bank teller to make ends meet for us. And, uh, and then she started having side gigs in addition to her job just to make sure that we were okay. Like her biggest worry was us not being able to achieve in life and then blaming on the fact we didn't have a, a, a dad growing up. So she was kind of like both of our mom and our dad at the same time and pretty much owe everything that I got to her. So when I was 14, my mom had an opportunity to send me to school in Belgium. That was a huge momentous time for us because education was obviously much more superior in Belgium than it was in Rwanda. And she knew a foster, a lady that she was a friend with who was going to be a foster mom for myself. And I still remember that first night when she left me in Belgium. I was only 14. That was the first time that I was away from my, my mom. And let me tell you, Andy, it was rough, man. It was rough. But it was a great opportunity for me to grow up fast, faster, I guess, in a way, and become more self-sufficient, which would help me in the future. 
Yeah. So you went to high school then in Belgium. And then at that point, when you graduated, did you make your way to the U.S. and do college there? So when I was in Belgium, I had a huge dream to come to the States like every other kid. But for me, especially because I never told you, but I was actually born in New York. Oh, Yes, my dad worked at a UN, and so we're there for a few years, and then moved back to Rwanda. When actually, I was only one, one, one and a half when we moved back to Rwanda. So I was always very proud to show my birth certificate that says "Born in New York City," even though I was from Rwanda. So my big dream was always I have to find a way to go back to the states. And so in high school, I remember. A lot of us were watching American shows, like high school shows, you know, like 90210. <laughs> and for us, it was like, wow, you know, that's that's how it is being in high school in, in the States. You know, I'm like, I got to I got to find my way there somehow. And then I started playing basketball. A lot of our, my friends were playing soccer because soccer is, is number one sport in Europe and actually in the world, really. But for me, I wanted to be American. So I had to play basketball. So I started working on my game and then I had an opportunity to fulfill my dream, become a collegiate athlete and come to the States. And I took it. Wow. That's incredible. So you played basketball in college in the U.S. Where did you play? I went to UC Santa Cruz. Awesome. Very cool. So I'm very interested because I've grown up in the U.S. my whole life. So for somebody who's not grown up in the U.S., but then looks at the U.S. and says, that's where I want to be, that's what I want to do. What was the appeal for you about the United States and wanting to live there as you were growing up as an adolescent? It seemed that uh, that you guys were having too much fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because high school in Belgium, it was like a full-time job. Basically going to class at 8 a.m., and then basically finishing that day at 5 p.m. And you had class after class after class after class. So there's no extracurricular activities that, that we had. It was just basically school, 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 school. So uh, I, I was seeing, you know, movies like how people had part-time jobs, you know, working at, a, you know, a coffee shops and things like that. And, and in Belgium, we didn't have that because everybody was, was in school. Mm. And then also uh, how people were playing sports. And so it seemed like, your way of high school was way better than our way because us was just all school, 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 school. And in the U.S., it was they had a good balance of both. Yeah, so when you did college then and you did the basketball life and the U.S. college, did you find that you found some of those freedoms where you're enjoying yourself a little bit more? Oh, yes, yes. It was really, it was actually easier. Schooling was easier for me because of my high school in Belgium. So so I had taken a lot of this in the science classes and math class, so I didn't have to do them here because I already had done them in high school in Belgium. So, uh, so a lot of classes I didn't have to take. And then I got to really enjoy that freedom of having only like two, three classes a day and practicing playing basketball all the time. It was, it was uh, the American dream. Oh, that's incredible. Very cool. So after college, what did you do for a living? And, and, you know, how did you make your way in the U.S.? So my plan when I came here was to play four years of college here in the U.S. and then go back to Belgium and play at the pro level like a lot of my friends were doing. People don't know that people, if you don't make it to the NBA, you can still play basketball in a lot of leagues all over the world and still make a lot of money. And they take good care of you. They pay for all your expenses. So that was my dream. Come here four years. Even though I wanted to be in the States, I still wanted to play a few years at a pro level and then hopefully come back in the States and live here. But I hurt my knee my sophomore year. Like every athlete uh, trying to come back way too soon, uh, you know, the doctors, uh, what do they know? You know, I know my body better than they do. And in hindsight, I wish I had taken a year off. 
that's when my dreams somewhat switched because I knew that I couldn't play at that level again. And then you start really focusing more on, on studying. And when I finished college, I saw this ad here in San Diego that, that said sell sports packages and make a lot of money. I was like, wow, that's, that's tailor-made for me, you know, still be involved in the sports industry and make some money. So I, I moved to San Diego and uh, started working at that job. Awesome. What were you selling then in San Diego? What's a sports package? Was that for sporting venues, things like that? So basically, it's a, it's a travel package that major corporations use to entertain their top accounts by taking them to an event like the U.S. Open Tennis, the Super Bowl, the Masters, all these big events where we take care of all the logistics, meaning the behind the scenes, you know, uh, providing the best tickets, the access to all the VIP parties, the hotels, transportation, all that. And all they do is basically worry about just schmoozing and spending that one-on-one time with their clients. That's cool. It doesn't get any more American than that, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Great. Big events, big money, having good times. That's cool. So so how did you grow your career at that point? And then tell me about your financial situation as you started to build up your income. So I, I worked for that company for about four years. And I basically learned my way up in the company, became a sales manager, started, started hiring people, knew how to do that, knew how to manage sales teams, and also learned the operational side of it. And then four years after that, I wanted, I decided to basically start my own company in the same industry because I felt like I was ready to jump in. And since I, I felt like I knew what I was doing at that stage and it was time for me to start my own company. And it was one of my biggest accomplishments because I had never really worked full time until then. So being four years into it and starting my own company, I felt like it was also an American dream. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did that go starting your own company? Did you hire employees and things like that? It was tough at first because a lot of my clients told me that they would come with me after I started the company. And then when I started the company, they basically thought I was too young. They didn't really trust me. So so when I did my plan for how my first year was going to turn, it didn't really turn the way I, I, I thought it was going to turn because nobody came. So mm-hmm. for the first six months, I didn't really sell anything. You know, I was panicking. And then month six, that's when the gates opened up and I started selling to a lot of companies like Coca-Cola and, and IBM, all the big uh, corporations. And then that really launched me. So I grew the company real fast from that point on, from like zero to like $5 million in the first four years. So it was really unexpected, the growth. And I started hiring salespeople. I started hiring an event planning team. I had an accountant on site. So I really, really took off. That's incredible. That's incredible. So with that buildup of zero to 5 million in revenue over that four years, did that help you to increase your lifestyle and help you build your wealth personally? So I basically started indulging myself and lived a high life when I, when I, my money was coming in. So money was coming in and money was going out. You know, I bought a townhouse. I remember in a ritzy part of San Diego that same month, which was crazy. I was like, okay, so I have a nice house now. So what do I need now? Okay, I need a nice car. So I went and bought a Mercedes that same month, which was unheard of because a lot of people, when they buy a first house, they kind of uh, relax because it's a big shock, your finances. So I bought a Mercedes uh, CLS 500 and I was paying $1,100 a month. And then a few months later, I bought four rental properties in, in, in Phoenix and my expenses basically just ballooned and I was spending about Twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a month. I was really good though. I know you mentioned about me spreadsheeting. I was really good at spreadsheeting though, so it wasn't like I was really spending out of control. 
I was budgeting into it, all my expenses into my spreadsheet. So I knew where the money was coming from, but I wasn't saving any. I was spending everything. So basically trips to Vegas, bought a service. If you knew me back then, Andy, you know, I was I had a <laughs> huge entourage. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, that's the American dream right there, right? They have Vegas, the Mercedes, the nice cars and the rental. How did you decide to get into rental properties? Was there an influence during that time where you were, I guess, reading into or listening to? Or is that something you just thought you should do to build your wealth? I had a buddy of mine who was a mortgage lender in Phoenix, and he was making a killing through mortgages. That was like in 05. He had bought a bunch of properties and uh, and he was telling me that was the way to go, especially in Phoenix at that time. Buying a place at $200,000, everybody was saying, you're never going to see a, a house, a three-bedroom house for $200,000 in Phoenix. Uh, so we all thought the market was going to keep going up and up and up, and it was time to get in. I don't know if you remember back then, but the lending was so lax. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bought four places the same month and 100% financed. I didn't have to put any money down. It was just ridiculous. For a few years, uh, I was doing great. You know, I had him rented. I had a property manager that was handling all the operational side of it and basically sending me a check each month for all those properties. So it was awesome. That's incredible. And then obviously you're mentioning a time frame where I remember I bought a house and then a few years later, the bottom dropped out on me. Did things go okay with your rentals in Phoenix when the Great Recession came about? Oh, no, no. I still remember... In uh, September of, oh, eight, of two, yeah, 2008, I remember when Lemon Brothers went bankrupt. That's when everything went belly up for me because the whole year, it was crazy because they said the recession really started in 07. I didn't really feel it. I had a great year in 07. And the first eight months of 08, I also had a great year. I was having a great year, a record year. But then when Lemon Brothers went, went down, then my industry basically came to a screeching halt. Mm. To give you an example, one of my biggest accounts was AIG. And they were spending a lot of money entertaining their, their clients all over the U.S. And then they, they needed a bailout from the government. So for the next three months, from uh, October to December, I didn't sell anything. And I had a huge overhead of $50,000 a month just to keep the company open. So at the end of December, I had to make the, a big decision of blessing basically closing the company. I had no money coming in and I, I was paying my employees, all the other bills. So basically lost everything, had to foreclose on the rental properties in Phoenix and I had to file for bankruptcy. Wow. And that all seemed to happen in like a six month time span. Is that right? I would say three months. Three months even. Wow. October, November, December, everything just spiraled out of control. I couldn't sustain it after that because, because our industry relies on marketing dollars. And if companies, that's the first thing they stop when the industry, when the, the economy is not doing well, kind of like right now. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsors. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. 
Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Thanks for taking time to consider our sponsors, everybody. Let's jump back into the show. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels to today right now. That's part of the reason I wanted to ask you about this is that there's so many parallels to what's happening today. And the fact that you say three months, that it can happen that fast, as you've well described, if you're living and spending what you have, how quickly, not only personally, you could be in financial trouble, but your company could be in a financial trouble as well. That's quite eye-opening. Exactly. And, and you don't see it coming, kind of like what happened with the virus. Like I was doing great the first nine months of 2008 and we had big dreams about 2009 and then it just came to a halt. Wow. Wow. So how did you bounce back from bankruptcy, these foreclosures and your company going under? How did you bounce back from that? So 09 was, was rough for me. Part of the bankruptcy, you have to take a class, online class, where everybody has to do that, where basically they want to make sure that you understand the gravity of the situation because they're expunging all your debts and they don't want to see you again. Mm -hmm. So that class, and, and I remember my lawyer was saying, some people get it and some people don't. Other people just come back and then have to file for bankruptcy again. But that class really hit me hard, Andy, because I really didn't want, I felt like I was a failure because I had great years, but I had nothing to show for because I was broke at that point. That's when I started listening to Dave Ramsey. And I remember, and he had also gone through a similar situation with real estate where he lost it all. And his cash phrase was cash is king. And that still resonates with me even now. So I basically became allergic to debt from that point on. I started towards mid middle of 2009, I started another company at a small scale in the same industry. But uh, this time around, I was going to be very fiscally responsible, live below my means and start to save. Oh, that's incredible. What were some of the things that you did at your new company that were different from the way you functioned your old company? Did you hold a lot more cash? Did you budget? What did you do differently? 
So one thing I did was instead of having a sales team, I, w- I was the sales team. I am the sales team. Also, I outsource my event planning. So I don't have an event planner on site. So I just hire event planners when I need them. So basically now he's on a need basis. I don't have a huge overhead like I had before. And I only service a few accounts and they didn't know me and, and we have a great rapport and they always come back to me. So my read book percentage is over 80% now. Mm. And the people that don't come back is because they don't have a need for it. It's not because I did a terrible job. Yeah, so that, that changed up. And also uh, on, on a parallel uh, note, I also started listening to more podcasts, uh, personal finance podcasts. When I discovered a mad scientist, that was the first personal finance podcast I actually listened to. He was a game changer for me because he opened the door to the FI world to me because through him, I discovered Mr. Money Mustache. I discovered JL Collins and Todd Tresseter. That's when I really saw a bigger picture for me, a a bigger goal for me, lower my expenses. Uh, At that point uh, with my wife, we were paying about $6,000 a month in personal expenses and we're able to, throughout the years, lower that. Right now, we're at $2,800 a month in living expenses here in San Diego, which is incredible. That's incredible. What about the financial independence message? Because it's a bit opposite of what your original thought of the American dream was. What about the financial independence message resonated with you at this point in time in your life? It happened at the, at the right time for me because uh, the big FI, like listen to Mr. Money Mustache, is how I didn't have to be a multimillionaire to have a, a balanced and a great life. That was mind-opening to me because a lot of the big financial companies they spend a lot of marketing dollars every year telling you that you need to have 80% of your salary to be able to retire and basically don't want to keep you invested for as long as possible so they can collect their fees. By listening to all the people in the FI world, I realized that my biggest why was basically I wanted to get the best of my industry because I felt like in the first round, the industry had gotten the best of me because I didn't want to have anything to show for after six years. And uh, this time around, I was like, you know, I need to do something. You know, I can still make a lot of money in this industry, but I need to really save the money, invest the money so I can build some kind of passive income so I don't have to need the industry as much as I needed it before. And that's what the big thing that FI community kind of brought to my life. That's incredible. So a, a couple of pillars that are part of the financial independence movement or the FIRE movement is, you know, owning your own business, which you already had, and then real estate and investing. So what did you do with regard to real estate, knowing what you had been through already in Phoenix? What did you do with real estate the second time around? So the second time around, I wanted to be careful. And one thing I forgot to tell you too, was when I finished college, I had never invested in the stock market. And then I remember I had a friend who was a, a broker, a stock broker. I gave her $5,000. That was like in, in early 2000, before the dot-com boom. I'm bust actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I gave her $5,000 to invest and she invested that into, I, I had no idea what she invested into, but it was a tech fund. And when the dot-com bubble, I guess, burst, my $5,000 turned into $1,500. So early on, I didn't believe in the stock market because I was like, this doesn't work. You know, I just lost all my money. And then now, uh, this time around, after the, the Great Recession, I was like, okay, I don't believe in real estate either because I lost also everything uh, in real estate. So I was more intentional with, with my, my, uh, my strategy this time around. 
So my wife and I, we decided to buy a condo in Mexico, out of all places, in Cabo San Lucas. And the idea was the lifestyle there is similar to what we have here in San Diego, but you can do it for a fraction of the cost. Mm -hmm. So we're like, okay, so if we buy a condo now, then it's going to appreciate and we can rent it out now. And then in a few years, when we're ready, we can just move to Mexico and then really cut our expenses, you know, by, by 60%. And to me, that was also the FI way of, uh, of looking at things. So we bought the place and then uh, we started renting it on Airbnb and it did phenomenal. And they like, we're renting it at 99% occupancy, basically. That's incredible. That's where everybody wants to be, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we did so, so well. The following year, we're like, you know what? Let's buy another one in Mexico. But then to diversify, we're like, okay, so we bought one on the west coast of Mexico. Let's buy one on the east coast of Mexico. So we bought another property in Playa del Carmen. So that's like near Cancun and Tulum. And it's, it's awesome there too. We also did unbelievable Airbnb. So I was netting with both properties. I was netting $40,000 a year. That's great. I spent only $500,000 to buy both properties. In Mexico, you, you don't really, you can't have financing. So you have to pay cash. So a lot of money that I had saved went into these two properties. So we were getting a lot of money back. And then also I started investing in, uh, in, in Vanguard with index funds. So you got over the the investing in the stock market worries and said, hey, let's make this happen again. What did you do differently with regard to your investing in the stock market that you didn't do the first time around? Well, the FI world kind of changed my mindset because I started reading a lot and trying to understand. I started reading the the, the guide uh, to investing, the Boglehead guide to investing, with Jack Bogle, uh, who is the inventor of uh, index fund Vanguard. And I started understanding that you don't have to really take that much of a risk when you invest. You know, like uh, the S and P 500 has averaged 11 percent if you include the dividend reinvesting throughout its history. So why trying to beat it if you can just join it? You know, so once you get an index fund that just mirrors it instead of trying to, to pick stocks here and there and then hope for the best. So at first, I made a couple of mistakes like everybody else. We had a friend of a friend who was a financial planner with Ameriprise and he got me into this annuity, which was a disaster. And then it was a 10-year maturity. So it cost me about $10,000 just to get out of it when I realized it was just a, a terrible investment. And then through reading again, you know, I realized that my way was to actually just do it myself and then try not to take too many risks and just in, invest in the index funds. Oh, that's incredible. So it sounds like it's been a combination of growing your business, investing in international real estate, and investing in the stock market, and then, like you talked about, lowering your expenses. So when did you get to a point where you felt like, hey, I'm financially independent, or I've got this thing in a good station? In 2017, because I went to my first spin con in 2016 when it was in San Diego, and I got to meet Brandon, and we always laugh about it because with the bad scientists. Because in my line of work, I get to meet a lot of uh, sports celebrities and also uh, Hollywood celebrities. But when I met Brandon, I was just like fanning over him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and his wife was 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 looking at me like, "What?" I, I was like, "Brandon, you understand, man? I'm a big fan of yours. Can I take a picture?" And his wife was looking at, at me like, "What? You want a picture of my husband?" <laughs> and, and I was like, "Yeah, you don't understand. You know, this guy changed my life. You know." And uh, so. 
I use a bunch of retirement calculators and also I'm on personal capital as far as uh, having all my, uh, my finances there. And in 2017, all of them were telling me that I, I had hit FI, that basically my investments returns and my passive income would cover all of my, ex- my personal expenses. And when I went to FinCon in 2017 in Dallas, I remember telling Brandon, I was like, okay, dude, I use your calculator and he told me that I was FI. So if things go wrong, I have to move in with you, you know? <laughs> That's great. I love it, man. That's awesome. What a victory in 2017. That was my first FinCon too in Dallas. I, I'm surprised we didn't run into each other. I was, I was roaming the halls like I had nowhere anywhere to go. So, <laughs> And then obviously with that, you're building your business, you're building your portfolio. You eventually became a millionaire as well. At what point did that happen? That happened in 2019. That was a huge year full of milestones for me because March of 2019, that's when basically the million mark, million dollar mark hit on my personal capital. And I was like, wait a minute, this this can't be. And I still remember how crazy it was because growing up outside of the United States, being a millionaire, it's like a pipe dream, especially in U.S. dollars. Because that's why everybody measures themselves. It's like, you don't want to be a millionaire in pesos, Mexican pesos or Rwandan francs. You know, because everybody can get there. But being a millionaire in U.S. dollars was a huge milestone that uh, I still cannot believe it because coming to the U.S. to me was already hitting a life lottery, but also becoming a millionaire, which not too many people achieved that milestone, was a huge milestone for me. The second milestone was in 08 or 09 when uh, I had to file for bankruptcy. My credit score, basically, in early 2009, I was at 415, I believe, or 420, my credit score, my FICO score. And in July of last year, I was at 825, which was, like, to me, I feel like it's even a bigger accomplishment to become a millionaire because I've always had bad credit. That Even when I was balling in two, before 2008, my credit was not good. You know, I was probably like in the 600s. So to be able to have excellent credit is a huge accomplishment for me. That's incredible. Financially independent, millionaire, and with great credit. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) Very cool. Well, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs to your story, and a lot of it has to do with our general economy. So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what's going on right now, Patrick. So has your portfolio taken a hit? Has your business taken a hit with what's going on lately with this pending recession we're in right now? Well, basically, my business came to a halt again for the foreseeable future because there are no more sports. And the CDC has said that uh, no gathering more than 50 people for the next two months. So basically, April and May, you won't see any sports if uh, this virus is not contained. So basically, everybody right now, which is basically just freaking out in our industry because we don't know what to expect, what's next. But this time around, I prepared for this contingency. I have a two-year emergency fund to uh, protect me and uh, also have a one-year uh, emergency fund for my uh, property in Mexico because uh, I sold the one in Playa and bought a, a property, a rental property here in San Diego. So I only have Cabo San Lucas left. So, But I have a one-year uh, emergency fund on that and also one year on my property here in San Diego. So I'm pretty much okay. This crisis, though, has exposed Airbnb because basically all my bookings that I had for the rest of the year are canceled. And that was like $15,000. Mm. And we don't know when that's going to come back. You know, we people, people cannot fly to Mexico. So, so people really have to rethink about the whole Airbnb business because 
if something like this happens again, everybody has to be ready. But this time around, I was ready though. So I have, I'm okay for at least a year on my, my properties. And also I have a two-year emergency fund. And the reason why I do the two-year emergency fund, Andy, is because in my line of work, you always have highs, peaks and valleys in sales. You know, one, one month you might do really well and then for and the next two months you might not do well. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to hit FI. So I, don't, I didn't have to worry about when my next meal will come from. So having a two-year emergency fund, so one year that just sitting in a liquid account and also have one year that I have just to pay for my yearly expense. That really gives me that peace of mind of, of writing this thing out and, and hoping that it, that it goes away quick. That's incredible. I love that preparedness. And it's probably come from the adversity that you had to go through with the Great Recession because you never want to experience that again. Is that right? Exactly. So I have to save my credit now. I don't want to go back to 400. I worked really hard to get to 800. So even though like a lot of people are saying uh, that uh, the government is will expunge paying your mortgage, I don't know if I believe it. So I'm going to still pay it. Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you, too. I bought a place last year. I bought a, a house. So I was debt free in 2017, 18 and early 19. But then I bought a, a, a property here in San Diego, which was a good investment because I was paying rent for four years. And the property that we bought in a really nice area in San Diego, my mortgage is basically half of what my rent was. So I still feel like it's a win. That's incredible. To live in such a beautiful part of the country and have a very low mortgage, that's got to feel good. Well, this is such an incredible story. Thank you so much for walking through your humble beginnings to where you've come from. And I'd love to hear just one more question before we go. So is your mom still in Rwanda? Do you still have a lot of family in Rwanda? And what is your contact with them lately? Yes. My mom lives in Belgium, actually. So she moved to Belgium my senior year of high school, and she's a Belgian citizen now. I have family in Belgium, and I also still have a lot of family in Rwanda. And I'm actually really worried, of course, for my mother, because she's older, uh, and uh, this virus is... Uh, so I talk to her every day on WhatsApp, and just to make sure that she's okay. And also, in Africa, a lot of people don't talk about this, but when the virus hits Africa, it's going to be even worse than what it is in Europe or here in the U.S. because we don't have the infrastructure. So that's why we just hope that they find some kind of thing to stop it now because it's going to be worse than, than, than Italy when, when it hits Africa because we don't have ventilators. We don't have any of the equipment. And by the time it gets there, it might be too late. So that's why we re I'm really praying that they find some kind of solution to get this thing stopped sooner than later. Absolutely. Well, I feel the exact same way. And I will be thinking about you and your family as you're, you've got a large family as we we're talking about, and you want to make sure everybody's safe and healthy. And we're all praying for the same thing here too. So Patrick, I appreciate you jumping in and sharing so much detail about your story and inspiring us how you can make your way from humble beginnings to where you are now as a financially independent millionaire with a great credit score. <laughs> so I just wonder if people have any questions and they want to connect with you, is there a great place for them to go? I started a blog in, in 2017, but I don't, I'm not active because I'm not a good writer. It's frugalsafari.com. So I have a couple of posts there that, that kind of tell my story and I should start writing more again. I'm very active on Twitter and my handle is frugalsafari. And also I'm on Instagram at a frugal safari. Excellent. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes for everybody if they want to connect with you. 
and keep the communication going. I have a lot of fun chatting with him on Twitter, everybody. So you should join us and, and connect with him too. Patrick, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate you sharing with us and sharing your great success story. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You know, it's a bucket list being on your show and I can't wait to listen to it. What a story of resilience and dedication. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Patrick M.A. Number one, being rich can mean doing less and having more. When you're young and excited about building up your wealth, fancy cars, big houses, and businesses with employees, that can sound awesome, right? Until you get all those things. (laughs) The responsibility, the pressure, it can weigh on us. And in the case of a recession, they can even crush us. I love how Patrick took his lessons from the last recession and that helped him to learn that less can be more. Number two, build an emergency fund that makes you feel secure. Now, an emergency fund with two years of expenses might have sounded crazy a year ago, but in today's market of uncertainty, it sounds like Patrick is a genius. (laughs) The point is, build up enough savings so you feel comfortable. This is a personal decision. That's why they call it personal finance. Now, three months is a good minimum to start if you want to protect yourself, protect yourself from job loss, but you can grow it from there until you feel secure. Number three, always be learning. Patrick found so many supportive voices along his journey to financial independence. He kept an open mind and a passionate thirst for learning. Yeah, he made mistakes, and we all have, right? But his openness to improve and grow allowed him to hit some incredible financial goals very early in his life. The point is, keep learning, keep listening, and always strive for improvement, just like Patrick did. Patrick, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us today. This show is all about creating financially independent millionaires, and you've shown us the path to make that a reality, even in the midst of a storm. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I'd like to ask you to do one important thing to support this show. Please send this show to two friends who you think would like it and tell them to subscribe. I'm looking to grow and help more people. So your recommendation would mean a lot. It would mean the world to me. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Louis Pasteur. Let me tell you the secret that led to my goal. My strength lies solely in my tenacity. Don't give up and keep pushing forward, my friends. Carpe diem. 